We are on uh, sermon number three today in this series on Hebrews 11 and 12, a series called By Faith. That definition that's at the beginning of chapter 11, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen is really at the foundation of, of what we're talking about as we move through these two chapters. And, and it can kind of be summarized in the notion that faith is not a commodity, but faith is about faithfulness. It's about faithful relationships and faithful relationships specifically with God. The book of Hebrews is like a sermon, really. It's quoting scripture all the way through. It's trying to root people in their traditional scriptures and helping them to see how those scriptures give witness to and and foreshadow uh, what has happened in in Jesus Christ. And so it is a sermon. And what the writer's doing in chapter 11 is giving us a very brief history of the world of the faithful in the Old Testament. He is uh, pointing to the great stories of Abraham and Moses primarily, but as we'll see in today's text, he also jumps ahead to what comes after Moses, the claiming of the land, the the fall of Jericho, the period of the judges, uh, the period of the kings where David is anointed, the prophets who, who come after that. Like most preachers, he sort of realizes that he has to cut things short as he gets to the end of his story of Moses. He can't go in that much detail about the rest of the characters that uh, he's going to be mentioning. And so he gives us a, definitely a Reader's Digest version of several hundred years in the text that I'm going to read today. And he kind of rushes through this big chunk of history. In some ways, what we see in this text today from chapter 11, the second of these two great depictions of the great cloud of witnesses, is the same theme that we were looking at last week, which is, was captured in that title, Striving Without Arriving, that the life of the faithful could perhaps from one perspective be seen as those who, who are in the midst of a struggle and never really arrive at the place that they're striving to move toward, but they remain faithful in that journey. And the lives of the faithful are therefore not tied up in neat packages, as we can all attest to if we just recount our own stories within the journey of faith. So let me read Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 39. By faith... Moses was hidden by his parents for three months after his birth because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, unafraid of the king's anger, for he persevered as though he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land, but when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. 
By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered from mocking and flogging and even chains of imprisonment. And they were stoned to death and they were sawn in two and they were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in the deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect or complete. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we pray for the ability to step back, to zoom out, and see the big picture. And to see that we have a part in that big picture. Help us to move away from our own stunted imaginations that get consumed with our own world. And help us to see how we are a part of yours. Lord, guide us and encourage us as we, too, seek to run the race with endurance as we follow Jesus. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. As I prepared for this sermon, an old text came to mind from my childhood, late 60s, on Saturdays, and this is the text. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports. <laughs> the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. The human drama of athletic competition. This is ABC's wide world of sports. I was listening to a recording of it this morning. I didn't have it memorized, by the way. It came back, and I was able to kind of get with it. But I was looking at a recording of it from 1969 this morning, and it just brought it all back, the time that I spent watching that show. And it's that thrill of victory and that agony of defeat that caught my attention as I read this text, because that's really what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. He's talking about people who have lived the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, those who wandered in wildernesses and those who conquered kingdoms. And all of them were a part of the story of faith. What the line from Wide World of Sports and also the lines from these texts in, in Hebrews 11 tell us is something that we all know to be true, and that is that life is never certain, and life is almost always messy and uneven. It's never simply an uninterrupted ascent, or nothing more than a series of losses that are woven together by a, a thin thread. But it's an uneven combination 
of victories and defeats. And that was certainly the case with Moses. Moses is the next major character that the writer of Hebrews tells us about. And if you don't know the Moses story, the passage that I read wouldn't make much sense to you, really, because he's giving you a very short synopsis of that story, but he captures the way in which that story was an uneven one. That that story was filled with threats of death and also with amazing victories. When Steven Spielberg did his animated version of it, you kind of caught this, you know, you you caught the, the wildness of this story that begins with a baby who whose parents refused to euthanize because the Israelites were getting too numerous. And so the Pharaoh said, you got to kill the male babies. We, we need to take care of this. We need to decrease their numbers. They're growing in too big a proportion, which is a big part of the story of the people of Israel as they sojourned in foreign lands, they always got successful and they always were resented. And that carried with them well into contemporary times. But Moses' story is the epitome of that uneven and messy life that's filled with the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat and the first big victory is just survival because he's put in this basket and floated into the garden somehow of Pharaoh's daughter who decides yeah this baby is cute I think I'll keep him and raises him as her son and so the writer of Hebrews alludes to this right at the outset that his parents by faith were not afraid of the king and saw a greater good in disobedience to that royal edict in saving their son. And so he summarizes, he goes on to summarize the story of Moses' life. There is, as I've already said, the danger inherent in his birth and the faithful parents who defy the power of the king. There's also the fact that he was raised in the lap of luxury, that he couldn't have fallen into more privileged hands than the daughter of Pharaoh. And so he was raised as a prince in Egypt. He was raised as one who was so close to the throne that you know, he could have assumed it and in Pharaoh's household. But he ultimately became faithful to his true identity as he understood who he was and ended up embroiling himself in an altercation with an abusive Egyptian official and, and killing him because he was abusing one of his Israelite countrymen. And at that point, he has to run away. And he runs away to the land of Midian. He meets and marries a woman there and, and tends the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro until he's encountered by the voice in the wilderness the burning bush, the fire that burns with great heat and intensity but does not consume. What a great description of God. God's power and God's grace combined together. Don't tell me that the Old Testament is only about a wrathful, judgmental God. The fire that burns in the bush but does not consume the bush is the image you want to hold on to that points toward the amazing self denial and sacrificial reality of the life of Jesus Christ. 
But he hears that voice, and that voice tells him that he's going to lead his people out of Egypt. And so he's sent back into the environment from which he fled. At great protest, by the way. But he goes. He chooses by faith to go back to Egypt. And he faces Pharaoh, and he asks for the freedom of his people who have been enslaved and keep getting abused in that place. And then he experiences a great victory, probably the greatest victory of his life in that Pharaoh is literally, and his nation is literally brought to its knees because of the plagues that are sent. And so Pharaoh says, go. And then says, oops, never mind. uh, And goes after the people of Israel And you have that scene at the Red Sea where the people of Israel walk through and the armies of Pharaoh are destroyed. There's the routing of Pharaoh's great army by this one who had himself walked away from all that power and simply trusted in God's power at that point. And then you have the story of them going back into the wilderness. Moses was good at being in the wilderness. And they had 40 years in the wilderness together before they entered the promised land. It's a very uneven and very messy life. An amazing story. But there's one dominant reality underneath it all. And that's the faithfulness of the one whose voice he heard in the bush that was burning but not consumed. The faithfulness of that one is what constrained him, what urged him on, what pushed him towards something bigger than his own story and enabled him to see his place in that story. You know, it's it's interesting that this voice who, when Moses says, okay, great, I'll go to Pharaoh, but who shall I say sent me? And God comes back with that wonderful line, I am who I am. I have no name. I am who I am. Tell him I am has sent you to him. And that voice that Moses hears is the source of his calling. So when we talk about vocation today, vocation is from a Latin word vocare, which means voice, which is a calling. It is hearing the voice and being faithful to it. And and that's the dominant reality underneath all of this story of Moses that's being told of hearing the voice of the one who has no name, who is who he is, plain and simple, and is there to be dealt with in relationship and faithfulness. And then comes the biggest irony, the end of Moses' story, on this earth is the end in which he doesn't ever arrive at the place that he's been promising his people. At the end of his life, Moses waves goodbye to his people. And while he looks from the hill that overlooks the promised land, he does not go into the promised land with them. There is no triumphal entry. He just simply bids farewell and himself does not get to arrive, but blesses his people as they go. And so we have that concluding verse 
in verse 39 of chapter 11, yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. Much the same as when the writer says in verse 13 of chapter 11, all these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They lived faithfully in light of what was to be, but what they would never see in their lifetimes. Well, I can't think of Moses' story, and I seem to be lost in the 60s today for some reason, but it's probably announcing my retirement is making me nostalgic, but uh, I can't think of Moses' story without also thinking of Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech the night before he was assassinated. He was speaking to a a group of striking sanitation workers in Memphis, and he alluded to the potential shortening of his life at the end of the speech, and alludes to this story from Exodus as well. And he said this, right at the last paragraph of his speech, goes like this, I don't know what will happen now, We've got some difficult days ahead, and this is April 3rd of 1968. We've got some difficult days ahead, but that doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. And I might not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Whether history records our conquering of kingdoms and our wilderness wanderings or not, whether we find our place into those history books or not, whether we are great or whether we are small, we all have a very similar experience. And that's that none of us ever get the last word. None of us, even the most powerful of us, don't get the opportunity to make sure that the rest of history is going to go in a particular way. Because for the most part, whether we're rich or poor, powerful or weak, when we die, whatever we're holding in our hands drops. But that said, what is true is that irrespective of whether we're rich or poor or powerful or not so powerful, we all contribute to a story that is bigger than ourselves. We make a contribution. And so we all have the opportunity to serve those who come after us. And Lord, let us think about that rather than our legacy rather than preserving something that we think needs to be preserved, what might life look like if we looked at 
serving those who come after us and who will forge new pathways in different directions, perhaps in some cases and in the same direction in other cases. But the best way to do this is to remain faithful to the voice of the one who made us. This one who is up to something that is about more than us. And then understand that what he's up to is far more than we can ask about or even imagine. And so I take as the advice to me the the marvelous end of Paul's description of his passage on resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a great benediction for any Sunday. But it goes like this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Give us the bigger picture, Lord. Help us to hear that voice that widens our angle, expands our imaginations. Invite us as you are inviting us. Help us to hear how you're inviting us into your story. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.